Whoa! Before we get started, I want to go over the four sponsors for this episode who make all this possible. They're fantastic, so go show them some love. The first is the best URL in the industry, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, driving mass adoption. That's why we're all here, right? To get every human on earth a digital wallet and to get them using digital currencies. Crypto.com's helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and a new card payment. Everything you could want is at Crypto.com. They've been longtime supporters of Off The Chain and recently announced a new exchange. So go help them out, download their app from the App Store, or visit Crypto.com and tell them Pomp sent you. There's nothing better in the world than a company helping to drive global adoption of this new technology. Another part of global adoption is making sure that we secure the various blockchains with computing power. CoinMine has built the best consumer experience in mining, hands down, no competition. If you want to help secure the blockchain and get started in mining, you can go to coinmine.com pomp. Order a CoinMine, it'll arrive at your door, and you simply take it out of the box, plug it in, and connect to your Wi-Fi. You'll be mining your favorite crypto in five minutes or less. It is honestly magical. I have one running right now here in the office, and it's super quiet, it's got no heat, and every person that comes in the office asks, what is that? Every single person asks. It's a coin mine. The best part to me is that the coin mine comes with a mobile app that's super slick, and the company continues to push over-the-air updates to the device that add functionality, add tokens that can be mined, or increase the efficiency of the device. Similar to how Tesla does car software updates over the air, CoinMine's sending these passively to thousands of CoinMines around the world on a periodic basis. Pretty damn cool. When Farboot and the team pitched me on the idea of an Xbox or PlayStation-like box that could mine cryptocurrency in your home, I was immediately sold. I invested in the business, have a device personally, and keep telling people to go to coinmine.com pomp so they can save a lot of time if they want to get started mining today. And CoinMine has a partnership with our third sponsor for this episode, BlockFi. BlockFi is one of my favorite companies in crypto because they allow users to deposit their assets in a deposit account and immediately start earning interest. Think about it. If you keep your digital assets on an exchange or in cold storage, you aren't benefiting from any yield on the asset. With BlockFi, they allow you to deposit crypto and then get paid interest on a monthly basis in crypto. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in ETH? You can do it. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in Bitcoin? You can do it. The rates at BlockFi are currently some of the best in the industry. You can earn 6% interest on Bitcoin, and you can earn up to 8.6% APY on GUSD deposits. I'm an investor in the company and think BlockFi is building really important and compelling infrastructure. So go check them out at BlockFi.com pomp. Again, that's BlockFi.com pomp. And that brings us to the last advertiser of the episode, eToro. These guys have absolutely crushed it over the years. Their founder, Yoni, was one of the original Bitcoin OGs and has been ahead of almost every trend in crypto. He built eToro to help people buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies, but he added a few twists, social trading, copy trading, and virtual trading accounts. Social trading is a feature where every asset available on the platform has its own separate social feed where people talk about the asset, share trading ideas and analysis, and even include various charts or graphs. Virtual trading accounts is targeted at beginners. If you're just starting out and want to try trading with play money, eToro will give you a virtual account with $100,000 in it to test, learn, and get comfortable. And so, then that brings us to copy trading, which is by far the coolest feature. 
This allows you, as a user, to select any other user's portfolio to copy. If you see someone on the platform you like, you can set your account to mimic their trades. They buy Bitcoin with 5% of their portfolio, your portfolio buys 5% Bitcoin. They sell 50% of their Ether position, your portfolio does the same thing automatically. Copy trading's awesome, so go join the 10 plus million other traders on eToro and start trading all the most popular cryptocurrencies today. They're one of the largest companies in the space, and you can get started by going to eToro.com. Again, that is eToro.com, where the entire team's ready to get you started in just a few clicks. And don't forget, go subscribe to the Off The Chain daily newsletter. You can go to offthechain.substack.com. I write a letter of news, analysis, and opinion every morning that goes out to more than 40,000 investors. See you there. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. All right, guys, bang, bang. I'm sitting here uh, with a special guest for the 200th episode of Off The Chain. We're going to do something a little different. Uh, I shot out a tweet and said, use the hashtag AskPomp to send in your questions, and I'm going to answer as many of them as I can during the episode. In order to help me go through the questions, I've brought in the ever-lovely Polina Marinova to uh, to help read them out, so she's going to suffer through this uh, with us. Yep. I'm excited to make my debut. <laughs> Jesus. Um, all right. Let's start with uh, the first question. Okay. This one comes from at Crypto Nero. How many years did you ignore this space before being convinced? You saying you started with ETH mining was surprising. Yeah, actually, when I met you, you were not into Bitcoin. Yeah, so um, I think that uh, I, I don't, couldn't say that I ignored um, the industry. Uh, it was more of I just was ignorant to it. I, I, I didn't uh, I didn't know it. Um, I didn't know about it. I think I'd heard the word Bitcoin um, two or three times when I was working at uh, uh, Facebook uh, 2014, 2015. Um, but there was a, a, a gentleman, uh, JP Barrick, who uh, who really sat me down um, and uh, was like, hey, you should pay attention to this. But it was all around uh, mining. Um, and so uh, I had a background in in, uh, data centers um, and understood uh, how those worked. And so when I saw um, Bitcoin and Ethereum mining, um, it was a, a no-brainer right away. Um, but yes, we started with uh, with ETH mining uh, with GPUs. What's the next one? At JTV95 wants to know, the justice system hasn't been built for the internet. Lots of online crimes don't even get looked into. Do you think there will be a justice system built for the internet? If so, how do you think it could work? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I think that there's um, two ways to think about "quote unquote" justice. Some of it is uh, preventative. Uh, some of it is reactionary. Um, and so, if you think about uh, the justice system that we have, um, you know, in the analog world or, or the non-internet world, uh, a lot of it's reactionary. So basically, what ends up happening is uh, you do whatever you want, and when uh, even though you know you're about to do something that's wrong, um, you can still do it, and then. And once you've done that, uh, the law enforcement takes a lot of time, energy, and resources to uh, to build a case and go enforce on you. Um, I think what we're starting to see in uh, the internet age, um, especially in financial services, uh, is more of a proactive approach to uh, justice or, or law enforcement, um, where basically uh, the software has the rules coded into it, and it prevents you from being able to do things. Um, again, especially in financial services, where uh, there's heavy regulation, um, I think that that is... 
uh, you know, a trend that, that's becoming more popular. Now, with that said, there's a flip side to it, which is um, people should still have kind of free choice and freedom and individual liberties. Um, so if all of a sudden we uh, start to prevent people from doing things because we just don't like their ideas, um, I think that's a slippery slope. And so there's a balance to strike there. But, um, but, but I do think that there's a difference between kind of proactive and reactionary uh, approaches. And, and the Internet definitely is empowering people to take more proactive approaches than, uh, than before. Um, this one's from Hunter Horsley. Ah, Hunter, what up, man? <laughs> what is part of modern life that you think in 30 years we'll look back on and say, wow, I can't believe we did that? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, there's probably two pieces. One, um, I do believe that uh, we're going to look back and be like, humans used to be really stupid because they had to count on themselves. And what I mean by that is um, I think we're probably, you know, I don't know, somewhere between, let's call it 15 and 50 years away uh, from true embeddable technology. So you can imagine the ability now for a chip to be embedded in your brain. Now you have all of the access of um, Google and the internet, uh, all that information right at your uh, your fingertips or, or kind of as part of the computational uh, power in your brain. You can imagine that once we get to that point where every human has that capability, uh, I think we'll look back and be like, wow, I can't believe that they actually uh, used their real brains without augmentation. Um, and so I think that's something to uh, pay attention to. Uh, a second trend that um, is somewhat more controversial um, is the idea that um, the meat that we eat today is natural. Um, I think that you see things with like impossible foods, uh, beyond meat, etc. cetera. Uh, it would not surprise me at all if there's an ethical argument that ends up getting made around the uh, the inhumane uh, treatment of animals and therefore the lab-grown meat becomes more popular and eventually um, becomes kind of dominant. Now, there's a lot of questions around how is that scientifically um, kind of healthy uh, and what those impacts are, but, but I definitely think that's something to pay attention to. Um, and I'm sure that there's other things, you know, self-driving cars. Uh, I can't believe those people actually drove around. Um, you know, if you think of that type of technology, um, it's likely that the self-driving cars are, uh, yes, going to replace some jobs, but more so they're going to unlock a lot of time for creation and creativity uh, and production from humans. Imagine how much time people spend in cars not doing something other than driving. Um, and so I think that's, a, again, a, something that people will just look back and say, wow, I can't believe they used to sit in the car. Um, and, and so uh, that'll be uh, something to pay attention to. This is a good one. Um, from Elja Boom, what is your next goal? Be clear, be as clear as possible. Ooh, my next goal. Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think I've got a whole bunch of different uh, goals. Most of my goals end up being uh, pretty long-term stuff. Um, you know, for, for me, one that's easy, I think, for this audience to, to kind of wrap their head around is uh, in 2017, um, I put a really big focus on figuring out Twitter and growing that audience. Uh, in 2018, I put a pretty big focus on um, kind of systematizing and, uh, and figuring out how to grow um, the off-the-chain newsletter. In 2018, 19, I spent a lot of time uh, kind of systematizing and, and learning how to grow um, the podcast. And so for 2020, um, I think that one of the uh, the big goals for me is to figure out YouTube. Um, and what that really looks like is can I go from the you know six 7,000 uh, subscribers that we have today uh, to 100,000 subscribers by the end of 2020, um, I, I think would, uh, would, would kind of show that we, we've gotten the mastery of uh, that platform. 
platform, how the algorithms work, the type of content people want, um, kind of the distribution, uh, but then also the systems in place uh, on the content creation side. And so if you think about it from why is that important, you know, now we basically have four platforms where um, if there's any sort of algorithm changes on a YouTube or a Twitter or any other platform, um, you kind of have uh, multiple channels, some direct where you own the relationship with the uh, end user, and then some that are more kind of mass distribution, uh, like the Twitters and YouTubes. Um, but that's definitely a goal that I think is, uh, is short-term based and, and pretty measurable. Awesome. This is from at Greg197613. Wow. Okay. Um, when you pitch family offices, blockchain, and Bitcoin, what are their reasons for saying no? And how has this changed over the years? Yep. Um, so there's every... I think conversation is different. Um, the largest conversations, or I'm sorry, the largest family offices, those conversations, um, what I've taken away from it is like, the easy answer is we're going to do nothing. So when you're presented with a new idea, um, it takes some forward thinking, some courage, uh, and it takes action to uh, follow, even if you buy into, um, you know, kind of the pitch that you're hearing. Uh, and so it's very easy, uh, simple, and, and um, kind of the, the, the default to do nothing. Um, but once you actually decide, okay, this is interesting, uh, then you've got to figure out a lot of stuff uh, around custody, uh, how are you going to acquire? it? Uh, where, what are the regulations? Um, is there any sort of uh, documentation uh, or requirements for the structure of the family office that, that you need to be cognizant of, etc.? So I think uh, if the default is do nothing, if you can convince people, they'll take action. Uh, but then there's another group, and I think the group you're hinting at here, which is the group that hears the pitch and then decides not to do something. Um, and the, that group uh, is really doing it because they don't believe in it uh, or, or they don't think it's a good investment opportunity. Uh, and usually those come down to, uh, one, there's a regulatory uncertainty in their opinion, so, so they're not interested. Uh, two, they're worried about custody uh, or volatility. Uh, a third thing is um, they just are kind of like fiat maximalists. They, they, they don't believe that there's any sort of currency um, that could uh, you know become popular and, and, and kind of take over. And normally what I try to explain to them is there's a qualitative and a quantitative argument. Um, the qualitative argument is everything that kind of Bitcoiners and the crypto community believes around uh, the possibilities of this asset. Um, and, and so that's a little bit harder, I think, for a lot of folks to wrap their heads around if they're not in this every single day. Uh, but the quantitative argument is pretty hard to refute uh, in terms of the non-correlated asset with an asymmetric upside uh, and the impact it can have on a portfolio uh, given the modern portfolio theory. Um, and so I think that's really where we try to focus more is just using math and data to um, show them what an asset like this can do for their portfolio. Um, and obviously we've been uh, we've been pretty fortunate to uh, find some like-minded individuals there and we'll continue to do that. At Jimium Group asks, Bitcoin slash digital is cool and all, but what happens when networks go down or blacked out? What's the hedge against local blackouts? Yeah, so we saw this um, actually in uh, in Venezuela. Their entire uh, grid went down, um, and th there was a couple of things that people did. So the first thing to remember is if the grid goes down, the legacy banking system goes down. Um, but with Bitcoin, basically, you don't need the entire grid to be up. You you yourself just need to be able to get access to the internet. Um, and so when that happens, uh, I, I think that um, you need to be able to. Uh, 
one, have some sort of electricity generation. So you can think of just having a generator, um, you know, solar, something like that. Uh, two is that you got to be able to get an internet connection established. Um, and, and some people, I think, in Venezuela were showing that they could literally get it via satellite um, and kind of get out. And so the, the beauty of uh, kind of the grid going down uh, for something like Bitcoin is that as long as you yourself can get internet uh, and electricity, then you can connect to that uh, that network because it's always running. Um, and so you're not dependent on the entire like national grid or, or banking system to be up and running. Um, this is from at Coin Dorado. What were your hobbies slash interests during your time in the army? <laughs> um, I mean, no surprise, uh, working out, shooting guns, uh, and then I actually read a lot. Um, so I, uh, for whatever reason, I, I was young. I was, um, especially when I was uh, deployed, I was uh, 20, 21 years old and uh, pretty much spent most of my day um, working out. Um, and then uh, obviously the uh, the weapons proficiency uh, was important given what we were doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, so spent a lot of time on that. And then um, as I've talked about uh, a ton, uh, I, I specifically read um, a lot of books, but there were three specific ones that were um, quite uh, foundational to my life. Um, I read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, uh, The Richest Man in Babylon, uh, and Think and Grow Rich. And those three books I read kind of back to back to back. Uh, I was 20 years old, and they really changed the way that I thought about uh, money and work um, and wealth and, and kind of um, what I wanted to, uh, to spend my life doing. And so um, that was a big focus uh, along with that um, kind of uh, physical activity and, and the weapons proficiency. Um, this one is from at Walsh SRCM. Why wouldn't a deflationary currency be bad? Theoretically, people would spend almost solely on necessities and save the rest to increase their wealth. This would obviously crush economic growth and therefore is my biggest concern about BTC. Yeah, so I think that there's a, um, a very uh, important conversation around uh, consumption versus savings. And uh, we live in a world that has been driven by consumption. Uh, fiat currency, uh, the inflationary aspect of it, incentivizes you to spend money. So either to take your fiat currency and buy goods and services, or to take your fiat currency uh, and put it into uh, assets, real assets, things like real estate stocks, you know, whatever it ends of being. And so the reason why it's important um, conversation is obviously Bitcoin has a very different approach. It is a deflationary structure uh, with a disinflationary monetary schedule. And so you're actually incentivized to save. Now, the reason why this is important is if you go back for thousands of years, things like gold were money. And those have very similar structures to what Bitcoin is today. And so I think that what we have to remember here is that the fiat experiment is actually quite short. It's only been around since about 1971. Um, and so we've got, you know, give or take 50 years of this experiment. And, and yes, there has been uh, incredible economic growth, but also there's been incredible economic issues as well. And so there, there's a strong belief, I think, am, among a lot of people that uh, that inflationary experiment, um, what we're starting to see here is uh, kind of the kicking of the can down the road. Now, um, first it was interest rate manipulation, right, and, and, and movement. Now we're starting to see the QE over the last decade. Um, and, and so you know, that's kind of come, become a constant um, ne- necessity from central banks to, uh, to keep the economy going. But once they don't have the ability to uh, impact the economy uh, with interest rates and, and with QE anymore because we're addicted to it or, or 
um, kind of used to it, all of a sudden they have to go to something else. And I think this is where you see things like monitor, uh, monetary theory, MMT come into, etc. Uh, and so I think that there's this uh, general belief that over time, um, there's a bet that that system or that experiment ends up not working out in the long run. And something like Bitcoin is uh, really a return back to uh, what served as money for thousands of years. Um, and so I, I don't think that people should be worried about it as much as um, they should just have the historical context of what money has been for a really long time. Um, two questions. One from at Matt Weeday. How can I educate my relatives about Bitcoin? And then someone at Joey Clark V, also Crypto UGA, shout out, go dogs. Um, he said, yeah, what's your elevator pitch for YBTC for the average Joe? That. Yeah, so I, I think that the key piece here, um, there's there's two things. Uh, one is there's tons of resources online. Um, you know, the, the things that I've seen people use uh, that's been quite effective. So uh, Murad and I recorded a podcast episode. Um, this is going on uh, probably over a year ago now. Um, that, that was kind of the bull case for Bitcoin. Uh, I know a lot of people have had uh, their relatives listen to that, and that's really um, kind of changed the way that they thought about it. Uh, obviously, the Bitcoin Bitcoin Standard by Safe Dean um, is a uh, is a great book that uh, I think a lot of people kind of um, enjoy reading and understanding again the historical context and the more macro components of this uh, and then things like uh, Jameson Lop has a, a great Bitcoin resource um, I think it's lop.net/bitcoin um, that uh, has pretty much you know every talk that you could imagine every book every article etc that that would be helpful in this conversation um, so I would say those three resources are pretty strong in terms of like what's the pitch. Pitch is pretty easy. Um, I usually tell them, look, there's a, a financial system that you've grown up in. It's an inflationary U.S. dollar denominated system um, that's built on fractional res- uh, reserve banking. Uh, there's a new system that's being built. It's an alternative. It doesn't necessarily have to be a replacement, but that system has very different structural components to it. Uh, if you have 100% confidence that the current system is going to persist forever, you should keep 100% of your assets in that d- dollar denominated ecosystem. But if you even think that there is one percent possibility that uh, this other system has a chance of being successful, you should quote unquote get off zero and you should move some of your dollar denominated assets into that new alternative financial system. Um, and so that is where we get into, you know, sizing the, the risk correctly, etc. Most people we see doing this are doing it in kind of 100 basis point type, uh, you know, allocations to begin with. But obviously, being able to get them off zero, now they've got some skin in the game, they're paying attention. Uh, and we tend to find that they um, you know, kind of go down the rabbit hole once they're off zero. Awesome. Um, at Kinetic Crypto wants to know, how do you think we can get merchants to start accepting Bitcoin and crypto more regularly? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I think that there's two components to this. Uh, one, there, there's an education piece of it. Uh, people just got to be more educated on what is Bitcoin, why should they accept it, uh, how is it beneficial, uh, and uh, also um, uh, kind of a, a 1A component of this is having customers go in and say, hey, do you accept Bitcoin? I'd like to pay you in Bitcoin. Um, that tends to, to move merchants pretty easily. The second thing is also uh, an economic argument. So something as simple as uh, there's a lot of businesses now that will 
will actually give you a discount on the purchase of goods if you use Bitcoin because they don't have to worry about uh, the chargebacks and the credit card fees and, and, and all of the kind of legacy issues that merchants have. And so I think that, you know, explaining that to folks around um, here is why uh, this could be beneficial to you and your business, um, I, I think is uh, an economic argument and then also an education, uh, you know, kind of component to it. And there's a lot of people who are uh, working hard to do this. There's a lot of companies that have built technology to, to kind of help facilitate this. So I think we're on our way, but uh, but it takes time. And, and um, the more people we have out there, the better. Um, at Canadian HODL, <laughs> what if first world governments choose to ban Bitcoin to retain financial control, similar to the gold ban? Is this plausible? Look, anything's possible. Um, it's definitely a world where um, I think more and more people are uh, paying attention in, in uh, kind of the government ranks. Um, the good news is that I think every government that uh, at least I've seen talk about it, uh, there are some uh, proponents of um, of Bitcoin uh, and kind of what the, the industry stands for. Uh, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't uh, ban ownership. I think the important thing is um, they couldn't shut it down, right? So they couldn't shut down the network. What they could do is they could ban ownership um, and uh, and basically say, you know, turn over your Bitcoin, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's it's plausible, uh, but I don't think that we're uh, near that happening anytime soon. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it's Matt O'Dell, who's one of these guys who uh, who puts it well. He goes, look, prepare for the worst and, and kind of plan accordingly, um, but also understand that, um, you know, we're, we're still very early in the stages of this. And, and you see the central banks trying to wrap their heads around, you know, what is this stuff? Should we be participating in it? Um, and, and so I don't think that's something to worry about kind of in the short term. At Alex Crypto 09, what will happen after the last Bitcoin is mined? If incentive for miners is transaction fees, would this be sufficient? Yeah, I think that's a general belief right now is that the uh, transaction fees for miners um, would end up being the incentive. Uh, with all the information we have now, um, I, th I do think that it would be enough um, to keep those miners on. Uh, again, it, it's hard to kind of predict what happens 120 years out in the future, um, but but I think structurally that that's uh, that's directionally correct. And so as you know, we get more information. I'm sure people will kind of uh, reevaluate and and, uh, and morph their opinions. But but I think that's the generally held belief right now. At Chaka three two one, what's the most important movie you have ever seen? Ooh, the most important movie I've ever seen. It's a really good question. I don't know if I've got uh, the most important movie, um, but there's uh, th there's a bunch of movies that I really like. For, for those that don't know, uh, I'm a big uh, big movie buff. Um, Pauline is laughing right now because uh, whenever I get on a uh, an airline, I can immediately tell whether the uh, movie library is uh, is good or not because I fly way too much. <laughs> um, but uh, I would say uh, good movies um, that uh, they just kind of jump to mind. Uh, huge Lion King fan, um, which is uh, uh, something that I think is uh, probably not expected. Um, I, I really, really like uh, The Greatest Showman, um, which is actually a musical, uh, but I like that story um, and, and kind of the family components to it, etc. Uh, I like Cinderella Man. Um, I think that's a good one. Uh, Four Brothers is another one. Um, and then uh, I am uh, notorious for probably having watched every war movie uh, known to mankind um, but but uh, all of those I think are up there and then one other one that I think uh, people probably wouldn't expect um, 
and I, I'm going to get the name incorrect, so I, I probably should figure it out and put it in like the show notes, um, is uh, The Life of Mitt, I think it's called. But it's basically the story of a guy who's stuck. Uh, he's a, um, a photographer um, at a uh, magazine, and he's stuck in his job, and he's just locked into corporate America, can't escape. Uh, and he somehow gets thrown on this wild journey uh, where he realizes, like, you only get one life to live and, and go have adventure and, and enjoy it. Um, and, and basically, you can imagine that the movie pretty much is like him you know, throwing the middle finger up to his corporate job and saying, like, I'm going to go live my life. Uh, but, but I think that that's a, a pretty powerful movie uh, for those that feel like they're locked into uh, into the little monkey cage in the cubicle. <laughs> Tell them how you make me watch movie trailers, and, uh, I, and I hate it. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm regretting already having Plain to come help me with this. Um, but uh, there's a, a joke uh, that we saw online which perfectly uh, emulated this, which was uh, if you ever want to go watch a movie and you don't know what you want to watch, well, the best way to figure out what the movie to watch is is to watch all the movie trailers. Well, if you watch four, five, six, 10, 12 different movie trailers in a row, then now you're not watching a movie. You're just sitting there watching movie trailers. And so and it's uh, super annoying. And, and so I enjoy doing that um, because it's, you know, kind of try before you buy. But uh, what you end up seeing is uh, it's movie tapas. It's basically the ability to um, watch as much as you can and kind of try a bunch of different things all at the same table. Um, So this is from at Jason Benick. Which U.S. bank do you believe will be the first to break tradition and embrace Bitcoin deposits, transfers, and transactions? It's a great question. Um, I think the first one to buy a crypto company that has done that. Um, I don't think any of the major banks are going to kind of jump in the water headfirst and just do it themselves. I think what ends up happening is they're going to do it via acquisition. They're going to see um, a crypto native business that's uh, super uh, profitable and and growing really fast. Um, And uh, and when they see that, they're going to realize the economic benefit to them. uh, And they'll go and they'll just buy it rather than build it, uh, incorporate it internally, and then kind of scale it out using their resources and their scale. At the state of Crip One, <laughs> on 200 podcasts, rank the top 10 interviews you have had or the ones you believe were most impactful. Oh, man. Uh, okay, short answer. I can't do that. Um, but maybe what I can do uh, is I can throw out a couple that um, were really fun for me. Um, Murad and uh, I, uh, I don't think I'll ever top um, the episode we recorded. Um, he, he, uh, he, he came in and uh, it was the right time. Uh, it was the perfect message. He articulated it so uh, kind of eloquently um, that uh, it, it just – you know, it got a lot of attention for all the right reasons. Um, and so I think that's probably the number one episode I remember recording. Um, other ones that stick out in my mind, um, I, I remember uh, the one I did with Caitlin Long. Um, she was one of the first three that I did. Uh, I really, really liked um, when I uh, kind of got to sit down and pick her brain and really understand how she saw the world. Um, that one was good. The uh, what I'll call the Celebrity Club, uh, Kyle Bass, Anthony Scaramucci, and uh, and Spencer Dinwiddie, those three guys all uh, for various reasons were uh, were kind of memorable. Just that um, their their world is not Bitcoin, um, but but they all have uh, various levels of interest in it for different things. Um, and then uh, I would also say that some of the conversations I've had uh, that weren't so um, Bitcoin native also uh, are are quite um, interesting. Uh, and and so any time that I can talk to somebody who's really smart and has a lot of um, ha- has kind of a lot of ideas um, and, and can articulate them well, uh, I love to sit down with them and and uh, talk. Skirt, skirt.
Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, motherfucking mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry, your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in. Connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide. And then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com. Tell them Pomp set you and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. Um, at YJFang22. You guys got to get better Twitter names. <laughs> what are the three biggest developments that we should pay attention to in the crypto space over the next one to two years? Three biggest developments. Um, I think that there's going to be an acceleration of every stock, bond, currency, and commodity getting digitized. I think that there's going to be even greater levels of human trusting uh, algorithms and software over other humans. I think that we're going to see uh, large financial banks start to incentivize their users to use stable coins or digital dollars. Uh, so whether higher levels of interest, uh, better rewards on a credit card, that type of stuff. And then the fourth thing uh, is I think that Bitcoin is going to start to take even more of a material share of uh, global transactions. Like I, I think that um, Bitcoin is a, a, a really quiet beast when you look at the hash rate and the transactions and, and all the things that are happening there. Um, I think people are drastically underestimating what it can do. Um, and, and so paying attention to that is going to be important as well. Great. Um, at um, Okay, this is Abhinav. Agarwal, 94, give us three reasons why the government should adopt Bitcoin slash cryptocurrency. Yeah, um, this is a good question. Uh, I, I don't know if I've got three reasons kind of quick, clearly articulated, but the, the things that kind of jump the top of my head are one, um, anytime you're doing a bilateral trade between nations, uh, as um, the president of the United States has been uh, highlighting, there's tons of manipulations of currencies and economies. Um, something like Bitcoin is uh, a non-sovereign-backed currency, meaning that uh, if you're two countries, you know that uh, the other counterparty to the transaction uh, is not manipulating their currency. They can trust that you're not manipulating yours because you guys are using something that is outside of the control of both of you, uh, and it's fully transparent, uh, and you can... And and verifiable. So I think that's kind of one 
two is uh, the fiat experiment probably doesn't work over a really long period of time. Um, and, and so I think that that's going to end up being something that's um, important to pay attention to. And, and so just like individuals should have kind of that chaos hedge uh, or smuck insurance, um, I think that uh, government's doing that as well. It makes a lot of sense. And then the third thing, um, and one of the things that uh, I think goes untalked about a lot, is the ability to turn excess power into um, capital, right? And one of the most scarce resources in the world. Um, all these countries have lots and lots of excess power. A lot of it's renewable power. And what they're trying to figure out is what do they do with it? Um, and so there's not much thing, there are not many things that are better than simply let's go build mining facilities, let's set those up, and let's start securing this uh, computing network that is already the most powerful computer in the world, the most secure computer in the world. Um, and so I think that uh, that's a third reason and an economic argument as to what they should be doing with it. <clears throat> At Irritated Wasp, <laughs> in your opinion, what gives billionaires reason to be pessimistic about BTC? What would or could produce optimism for them? And does this matter? What got them here is not what we're talking about. Um, if you're a billionaire, and especially if you're, you know, quote unquote, self-made or, or you didn't inherit the money, um, the dollar-denominated inflationary fractional reserve system worked pretty damn well for you. Um, you. You kind of won the game, if you will. And so the idea that people are saying we should switch the rules of the game or we should go play a different game um, probably aren't super attractive to you because um, it, it's an exact uh, contrast to what built the system, you know, built the wealth you have. Um, so I think that it's no surprise. It's just them talking their book, frankly. Um, so I think that's one piece. Uh, what brings them into it is uh, there's actually a lot of, uh, I, I think, billionaires or wealthy folks who realize um, just because what got me here doesn't mean it's going to get me there, right? And so there's, the world's changing. Um, and, and when the world changes, I need to reevaluate from a first principle standpoint uh, what the future looks like. And so those folks are, uh, are hard at work trying to understand that. At Clint Beastwood One, what are the most important three books you have ever read and what's on your reading list currently? Um, yeah, so the three most important books, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, Think and Grow Rich, and The Richest Man in Babylon. Um, and, and really, I think of the most important book is always uh, what the book was, who you were at the time, and, and uh, the timing of when you read the book. Um, so those three all read together, like I, I previously said. In terms of books that I've read recently, uh, I really liked uh, Sam Zell's book. Um, I read uh, Steve Schwartzman's new book. Um, let's see what else have I read. I read Edward Snowden's uh, Permanent Record. Record. Uh, I'm currently reading a book called The Telomere Effect, uh, which is all about um, kind of our DNA and how it relates to aging. Um, basically, the DNA strand at the end of your DNA uh, has something that is um, overgeneralized in a sim or a simplistic way, similar to like the plastic caps on the end of your shoelaces um, that, that kind of close off the DNA strand. And uh, as you uh, have a, a str more stressful life, you sleep less, you eat worse, um, you don't actually exercise, etc. those uh, plastic caps or those telomeres end up shortening. And as they shorten, you age uh, faster. And so if you've ever seen somebody uh, who's, you know, 25 years old, but they look 40, uh, it's probably because they have short telomeres. And so this book basically goes into the science behind it and some of the things that you can do um, to, to kind of stop the shortening of the telomeres or even reverse it and, and help to uh, elongate them. At Chuck's <clears throat> Neat Works, <laughs> what are what are these names? All right, if um, if a robot takes your job, is it entitled to support you for the rest of your life? 
No, I, I think uh, you know if you've ever seen the uh, the saying or, or Lamar Jackson of uh, the Baltimore Ravens um, at, at the, after these NFL games, he's been wearing a shirt that says uh, "Nobody cares, work harder." Um, and, and so I don't think that it's in in kind of the automated world that nobody cares. I think actually a lot of people are talking about this, so, so a lot of people care. Um, but but the idea of working harder that works in sports. I don't think working harder is going to uh, solve the problem here. I think what people need to do is they need to be very intelligent about optimizing for skills um, that computers and, and machines aren't going to be able to do. And so, uh, you know, one of these ideas um, that I have is that creativity is mispriced, meaning that, um, you know, the machines are going to be really good at doing monotonous kind of repetitive work. Uh, but the ideas of, uh, of creativity, of uh, kind of the human ingenuity, etc., uh, that's going to be really hard to replicate with machines and computers. And so if you can figure out how to um, start to get into a world where um, that that's your advantage. I think you'll be uh, in a good position. And then in terms of uh, should the machine actually support you, fuck no. Um, I, I think that the, uh, the, the idea is, um, you know, most people are monetizing their physical labor or their intellectual labor, right? And that's how they're getting paid. But one of the things that we all do is we create a lot of data. Um, I've talked at, you know, pretty uh, extensively about the idea that all of that data eventually you're going to own. Um, you'll hold it in a wallet. And as people want to buy it from you, they basically, you can permission them in or out. So something as simple as how many steps you took today, what your heart rate is, what your blood pressure is, what you ate, um, kind of your uh, insulin levels, you know, all that kind of data um, that, uh, that it's something like an Apple Watch and a couple of very easy tests could uh, could figure out. There's going to be a lot of healthcare companies that want to buy for either research or, or marketing purposes or whatever. And so they'll buy it in an anonymous and um, kind of aggregated format. Uh, and you'll have to permission them in to do that. And in exchange for you giving up your data to be included in the data set, then you'll get paid something. And so I think that we can get to a world where um, kind of the basic needs of a human are met by simply allowing them to monetize that data. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take some while to get there. But but I definitely think that that's going to be a much kind of more capitalistic uh, approach to solving the problem uh, rather than um, kind of, you know, kind of a more socialist, hey, either the machine or the government should take care of you. At BeanSim84, how many people in percentage of Bitcoin buyers actually pay something with it and don't use it for speculation? It's a great question. Uh, I don't think we know the answer, um, and w- which is also part of the advantage of, uh, of Bitcoin is we don't know what people are using it for. Um, so when we look at like on-chain transaction volume, uh, it's really hard to tell uh, what people are doing with it. Um, and, and so I think that that's... Um, you know, one part of the strength of Bitcoin. Two, uh, it makes it really hard to answer this question. Uh, obviously, it is not as many people as we would, um, you know, uh, think it is. Um, but but at the same time, one of the things uh, I've started to talk a lot about with institutional investors is, um, you know, the, the last question is like, well, you can't buy coffee with it, or people don't buy coffee with it. And what I explain to them is, you probably don't buy coffee with dollars, right? What you're likely doing is when you go into that coffee shop, you're swiping using credit, and then you're paying off the credit card at the end of the month. And so when that happens, yes, you're using a dollar-denominated system, but you're not actually using dollars, you're using credit. And so um, I think that Bitcoin's very similar here and that people are using other aspects of it 
um, uh, or they're using it for other things than buying coffee. Uh, but over time, as the second, third, and fourth layers get built on top of it, we'll get more scalability. It'll be much easier from a consumer experience, um, user interface, et cetera. Uh, and so that kind of more um, P2P transactions or merchant-based transactions will uh, will accelerate. Um, but, but again, we're 11 years into this thing. And, and so I think we've just got to be patient and understand that time's on the side of Bitcoin. At Illinois Block C1, how will crypto change political fundraising? Um, I don't think it'll change really that much. Uh, I, I definitely think that um, kind of the ethos, uh, if there's a campaign um, or a candidate that really buys into uh, kind of what Bitcoin is and, and how it works, probably the, the most, um, the closest candidate today is somebody like an Andrew Yang um, around all the automation and, and um, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain, et cetera. But I don't think that uh, whether a candidate accepts uh, US dollars or, um, or Bitcoin, it's really going to matter. Uh, it, it really just comes down to are people willing to donate uh, to support somebody's ideas? Um, and uh, thankfully, in the United States, we've got a democratic process or, or as close to it. Um, and, uh, and and those campaigns have to uh, kind of work uh, to, to get the support of people. And so I don't think that uh, Bitcoin will end up changing it. That's all I got for you. That's it. All right, guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Uh, go, uh, go, go follow Polina on the internet. She, uh, she loves when uh, everyone from the crypto world uh, tweets at her. I'm joking because she has a uh, in the, the notifications of her Twitter is uh, incredibly peaceful and calm and kind, <laughs> and, and everyone nice. is so uh, loving towards each other. And then she will see uh, all of us in the crypto community, and she's like, "Oh my God, I can't believe that you guys <laughs> talk to each other that way." Yeah, be nicer. <laughs> So uh, thanks so much for, uh, for listening. Polina, thanks for, uh, for helping me do this. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.